You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group, www.americantheatre.org. All right, welcome, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Rob Weinert Kent, the Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre Magazine, and this is off script for August 11th, 2023. I, uh, my pronouns are he, him. I'm coming to you for, actually from the TCG offices in Manhattan, landed in Lenape. Um, the, the, my background, if you're watching this online, is a uh, beautiful theater in Chautauqua, New York, which is not where I am, but that's we're going to be speaking today to Mike Liu, the playwright of a play called Tiny Father, which is playing right now at Chautauqua, and to the director of that play, Moritz von Stuttnagel, who's uh, who's working with him on that play. So we're gonna to talk to them in a bit. And then later in the hour, we're gonna to speak to uh, Jay Wynn Russick, who's the Baltimore area critic, who's gonna tell us a little bit about uh, the Contemporary American Theater Festival that she she saw in, in, in July. So we'll be talking to all those folks in the next, in the next, uh, next hour. But first, the editors and I will talk about what we've been writing. Uh, introduce yourselves, folks. Uh, sure. I'm Gerald Pierce. Uh, I also go by JR. My pronouns are he, him. I am the Chicago editor for American Theater. I am zooming in from the traditional homelands of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi nations, uh, as well as many other nations who consider this area that we now call Chicago their homeland. Uh, and I will pass it off to Allie. Hi, I'm Allie Pearson. I'm the associate editor of American Theater Magazine. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm on a little bit of a vacation. So I'm zooming in from Polly's Island, South Carolina. That is the Waccamaw and Winya land of the Chikora region. Uh, so fun to zoom in from somewhere in this. We've been very busy for the past couple of weeks since our last episode on July 21st. Um, JR, you've been holding down the Chicago coverage. A lot going on there with uh, you and Gabriella. Tell us about what's going on there. Yeah, uh, so we have had a few pieces come out. I want to highlight three features that we had come out recently. Uh, the first of which I want to talk about is Port of Entry, which uh, we had reporter Emily McClanathan uh, head out to this new immersive piece from Albany Park Theater Project and Third, Wa Third Rail Projects, uh, where they took an old warehouse completely gutted it and put in apartments. So it looks like a courtyard apartment that you might see in Chicago on the inside, complete with places to cook and sit and living rooms and bedrooms and all that. Um, but it's an immersive theater project. And uh, Emily talks a little bit about her experience going to it and the uh, creatives behind it who have worked with an ensemble all um, consisting all of young artists. So. Uh, check that out. Uh, and then Gabriella wrote a beautiful profile of Marvin and Brian Quijada, who have been, I don't want to say household names, but pretty well-known names here in Chicago. So we uh, are happy to share their, their journey to becoming the fantastic artists they are. Um, Gabriella does a really nice job taking you through their history and showing how their shared history turned out these, these two very distinct artists. Uh, and then the third piece I want to just chat about is uh, a piece I wrote where I spoke with uh, director Georgette Verdon, who has been making waves as a director in Chicago for years, but uh, recently had to say goodbye to her artistic home where she was artistic director of Interrobang Theater Project, which um, closed this year, is actually closing at the end of this month officially. And she talked about the impact of Interrobang has had on her career and then spoke a little bit about what we've been seeing in the Chicago storefront scene in general and, and what this kind of turnover means, both for her career, which seems to still be going in a really great direction, and for the, the artists who depend on this storefront scene uh, to make inroads in the theater industry. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll kick it to Ali, Rob, whoever would like to chat next. I can jump in here real quick. Uh, I just, I've been, uh, we teased in the last episode, it was on a Friday, we were about to drop and we dropped on Monday, 
our big piece on the crisis in theater. Obviously, you might have read about some layoffs, cancellations, uh, contraction, very peculiar crisis that's affecting all theaters of all sizes all over the country. Not It's hard to generalize about what's the cause is, but there definitely is something going on. So we wrote about that. We also listed a, a, all the theaters that we had heard of that had closed or theater programs, including Lincoln Center Director's Lab, but everything from Bayer Children's Theater to, uh, you know, uh, San Diego Rep, a lot of a lot of uh, theaters to mourn there and celebrate the lives that they had. So anyway, that's not the last word on what's happening. And it's also there's a lot of other things to report as, as we've talked about. So glad we did that. Um, and I had this whole staff was was on board for that because it was a big lift. And so uh, definitely check that out if you haven't. Um, and then I was just been busy on the my circuit of doing Q and A's with various people, very, really interesting people. I mean, it keeps me interested in, in the theater and optimistic about it. Um, one of the best was the Pulitzer Roundtable, which has become sort of a tradition. I, I did it last year with James Irons and Christina Wong and uh, Sylvia Curry uh, and decided to do it this year. And it was basically a love fest, but it was also a really interesting conversation between Sanaz Tusi, who won for English and the two finalists, Alicia Harris, and Lloyd's uh, just a great conversation. They really could not be uh, more interesting and nicer to talk to. Uh, uh, and then I also spoke to two other people who were very interesting, uh, Sarah Holdren and Jackson McHenry, who are, as of next week, will be the co-theater uh, critics at New York Magazine slash Vulture. Um, Sarah was there uh, for a brief, but very uh, impactful uh, tenure and then uh, Helen Shaw was in there and Jackson's been taking up the slack and now they're going to do a two critic uh, uh, tenure, which it's not that radical. It's like a lot of a lot of film uh, film reviewers share share with another person. Uh, the New Yorker does that now with Helen Shaw and Vincent Cunningham. It seems like a times was supposed to do that, but I won't go too into the weeds with that. They used to have co-critics and they don't right now. But anyway, I also spoke to. Uh, Mariah C. Kaminsky, who was brought in as the artist director of Pittsburgh uh, Public Theater right before the pandemic, or about a year or so before the pandemic, and Shonda McDill, who just took over as managing director, and the two of them have big plans for that theater, and it's fascinating to talk to them about. One of them has sort of been through the fires of, of, of the pandemic and, and the shutdown. The other one, uh, Shonda specifically said she been, has been skeptical of joining Lord and joining that that field for her whole career. And now she feels like this is the opportunity to make change. And so I'm really inspired by that conversation. And they have a really interesting season coming up. Allie, what else do we have? Yeah, I've got uh, three pieces to highlight here. Um, the first is a really interesting and vital archive project, uh, Voces del Teatro, <laughs> please excuse my pronunciation. Um, but it's a archive project uh, based out of Los Angeles that is looking to document and capture the wonderful history of Latinx theater in that region. And it's vibrant and very fascinating. So please check out that feature. Uh, the next one I wanna highlight is our profile on the, the complicated but, but wonderful resonance of Here Lies Love with Filipino artists and creators backstage, behind stage, on stage, and also Filipino audiences and, and what that show really means to them and, and hits home in this complicated way. Uh, so please check out that brilliant feature. And then finally, there's this great Q&A with Robert Lyons at the New Ohio for the final Ice Factory Festival. It's a bit bittersweet uh, with, the, with the theater closing, but uh, they're ending on a high note. So if you're a fan of the Ice Factory Festival, uh, please, please check that out and uh, find out all about their, their programming. Awesome. Well, I just want, I will highlight one, one other thing that I, we, we had a big news item in the past week. Uh, we have a new managing editor, Calendra Smith, Atlanta-based writer, contributor to the, to the magazine for years. And she's on hand, not just to help us with our usual duties, and she'll probably be on an off script in the future, so look for that, but also uh, helping us get our first print edition. So we are in the throes of getting a print magazine ready again for the fall. It's an October season preview, a top 10 pl plays list, 
all the things you come to expect. And some of the features that actually we have just spoken about will we'll get some play in that issue as well, as well as in addition to a bunch of other exciting pieces. So if you're not a subscriber member now, please, please, uh, we usually make an appeal for support, but this is not just for support. You'll actually get something in return. <laughs> you get not just our fine work, but you get a print magazine in your hand. Um, uh, I would like to go now to our wonderful guests, Mike Liu, playwright, and director Moritz von Schlupnagel, uh, director and writer of Tiny Father, styled in all lowercase, I noticed. Uh, that, that was a, it's a co-production Bariton Stage Company and Chautauqua Theater Company, where it's running right now in West New York. Uh, you two have worked together uh, for many years on various plays. The big, the big title we all know is Teenage Dick, you did at the public and then did a tour last year but you've all you know you've all worked all over the place uh i just want to throw it to you mike i want to start with you and ask you a little bit about how this play came to be uh it's about a, a, a premature uh birth and a father dealing with that obviously it says it's inspired by your own uh experience uh i could say with my own experience i was a, had a premature kid who's now 14 doing great you never know but he he put, it, he put us through a little stress in his first month of life. Tell me about your experience of that and how the play came out of that. Yeah, I had a um, commission from Audible and they wanted a two-hander. Um, and I uh, was eager to sign on to it because um, sometimes I actually find commissions to be onerous because it's, it feels as though they're like, um, they turn like a... Um, something that you do like a book that you would read for fun into a book that's an assignment and so you're just like oh I don't. but um in this case um what really uh drove me to uh, take on the commission was um playing in a different medium um and uh and then uh having just a, a two-person uh script and those like I find that limitations can sometimes inspire me and so I was like okay well usually I do like a six to eight person cast and usually I, I have certain tricks that I can pull that um you know that I can't in audio like um I quickly discovered that like uh that exits were hard to convey or that like like I, I could have like a usually in a live show have like a button line and and then they exit or lights go out and like that those normal sort of patterns were disrupted and that was exciting to me but I didn't know what I actually wanted to write about and so I sat on that commission for a while and then um, we had our second uh, child who was born three months early and um, uh, and went directly to the NICU. And I didn't think about anything artistic for a very long time. And uh, uh, we uh, endured a, a like three and a half month, uh, four month hospital stay, uh, which was really unexpected. And um, since we have uh, like our older kid, um, uh my wife Rahana and I were were like uh leaving him in daycare and like taking a, a um ride into Manhattan for the uh, to be at the hospital and do this really bizarre sort of you're with your kid but you're also with a lot of medical equipment a lot of medical people yeah. and you don't know what's yeah. going to happen and then you go back and pick up your kid and um and there's no playwriting that either of us were doing at all um, but yeah. after we got out and like, you know, maybe like uh, nine months or so later, um, I grew to realize that this was really something that I wanted to talk about and that it was a experience that um, very few people go through, but that um, really, ling I'm sure lingered for you and really lingered for me. And so there was a lot that I wanted to get off my chest. And so um, I wrote a draft of that during COVID and Moritz directed the audio version of that. Um, which we rehearsed during COVID too, which was so weird. Um, and uh, that audio version exists. And then um, I wanted to see whether it would work on stage and whether I could actually undo some of the kind of audio only like uh, soundscape stuff and whether it would live in three dimensions. Um, and uh, the play development process on it was so weird because we did um, uh, workshops with um, Ojai Playwrights Conference and with uh, Cape Cod Theater Project and they were all virtual. And so there too, like, uh, I'm used to being able to sense, you know, energy in the room and, and make adjustments, but it was all kind of like you do it over Zoom. And then at the end, people are like, that was good. And you're like, but, but what works? Like, what, you know, like moment <laughs> to moment, what worked? And, um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and so um, 
uh, won the Weisberger Award from uh, Williamstown, and we did a reading there and then uh, jumped into this uh, co-pro process between uh, Barrington and Chautauqua. And um, and you're right that Maritza and I have worked a lot together. So uh, in addition to kind of going through all those iterations of this play, we uh, also have, I have lost count now, Mo, but um, <laughs> he's like the primary interpreter of my work. And um, what was really uh, awesome uh, for, for me personally was just uh, um, that we'd worked together so much, but that uh, Mo uh, himself became a parent and like within this development process. And um, I've really enjoyed seeing his lived experience kind of catch up to all the directing expertise so that he could be like, oh, you want to change a diaper? You actually do it. You know, he kind of gets up and, and the direction is coming from a place of like, I've changed so many soil diapers as opposed to research. like this. Yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly why Oscar came around. It's like, we got to do some research for the show. So we better, better get a kid in the mix. That's commitment. You know, that's what it is. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's a, you could yeah, you could somehow write that off. I don't know how you can, but uh, yeah, I, I um, <laughs> just 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 to uh, just to, to to read the words Billy Rubin again was uh, uh, Billy Rubin meconium. Those exciting those exciting terms from uh, from the infancy and the and the blue, the pictures we have of our preemie in the blue light with the with the with the blindfolds on and things taped to them. It's, it's, it brings it all back in a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful and, and scary way. And I, I remember I was, I was telling uh, my colleagues that, you know, it was only a month for us, but it was very indelible. I remember the faces of all those nurses. I remember the people in the, in the adjacent isolates who had much worse situation, you know, like we pray, we're praying for them. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was very impactful. So I can imagine if I were a playwright, which I'm not, I could imagine it'd be great material for play um i mean i had an out-of-body experience kind of looking at the set like i kind of wanted to run mm. because it was <laughs> such a good you know such a good and realistic set that i was just like oh i uh i don't know if i can be here <laughs> um but it uh, that said it's a comedy <laughs> so it's it's all it's all like in the name of uh kind of good um excavation right right and the NICU is just such an interesting percussive environment. Like it's got, there's beeps and wires and hissing mm. and all kinds of things. And, and I love the way that this play, I mean, obviously it was an audible play, but it plays with those sounds and those kind of interruptions so well. And it's, it's an environment that like, if you haven't been to a NICU, like it's so clinical, but it's also warm and, and creating a story in that space is so specific. I'd, I'd love to know, Mike, just during the creation of this, it, fe it feels like both as a member of the Black community and somebody who's been on the internet way too much, that idea that people have this, like a fundamental distrust of medical professionals sometimes. And like one of the things I found fascinating about the play was like Daniel wrestling with finding things online, feeling this impulse as a parent of what his child needs, but also having a medical professional standing there saying, no, this is what we should do and not really trusting her. So I'm curious, is that something you experienced as well, that kind of push and pull, or is that something that was taken from society around us? I um, grew up in a very uh, medical household. And so I have like, I think a uh, intrinsic, um, bias towards medical professionals, whereas Rahana's experiences have been different. And she's, you know, had experiences where she, where she's not believed when, uh, when she says that an issue's going on. And, and, um, and then also like, while we were trying to advocate for our kid, there was a, 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 a strange shear between what we, because we, a lot of the parents that were in the NICU was their first time, they're really scared. And so they're like, whatever you say, that's fine. But we um, had, already had our first kid and so we had um ways that we wanted to interact with our kid or or uh, like proclivities that that were um sometimes rebuffed and uh didn't know kind of how to reconcile our instincts as parents versus their sort of expertise as clinicians and so the play is very much born from that and also from the other parents around us um and their experiences and uh i um i think that like it would be um, not enough for me to just kind of go through autobiographically, this is what happened. And like, there, like I uh, purposely made the character of Daniel a black father and um, the character of Caroline uh, um, 
a person of color, uh, I think I put in the front matter that she can be either Latin or Asian, but like that it's meant to look at race and medicine and it's meant to look at like at, at bias and medicine in addition to being kind of me um, getting off my chest some of the experiences that I had personally. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah, that, that was just a part of the, that really stuck out for me and feels like a conversation that's been happening on my Twitter feed a lot these days. Or my ex feed? I don't like that. Um, no, it's Twitter. It's Twitter. Just call it Twitter. <laughs> um, I, I do want to ask because, like, we've talked about the audible aspect of this. Moritz, can you talk a little bit about bringing this to the stage and kind of both the challenges of doing that? But I'm also curious what discoveries you and, and Mike as well have made bringing this work from an audio only to now on stage. Well, um, that's a great question. I um, uh, Look, there is something, as we all know, just about being in a room with other people. And especially, you know, this two-hander, like several other two-handers, asks you to switch allegiance or it, or challenges you to switch allegiance from one character to the other a couple times. And there's a different conversation, I think, that happens when you feel, as an audience member, you feel that energy around you that, you know, oh, this character is sort of uh, announcing this point of view and that's challenging some people in the audience or, or, or they are vocally reacting because they identify or um, uh, uh, have some opinion about where that person's coming from. And so it, you feel the way the dynamic of the script is, is polarizing the audience in a different way. And that push and pull is phenomenal. Um, I mean, of course, in like in the audio version, what you have is like it's all living in your imagination to a certain extent. And that is a, a, a kind of powerful kind of storytelling because you're like they describe what's happening medically with the baby. And so you're concocting an image for that uh, in the theater. It's a little different. Obviously, like we've got the medical equipment. You're sort of seeing it. You're seeing seeing all these tubes and wires uh, and um but in a weird way, the more you stare at it, the more normal it becomes uh, after a certain period of time, uh, weirdly. But I don't know, maybe that's not, maybe that's not true for everybody who sees it, I'm, I'm not sure. But, um, but I think what you do also get is you feel what it is to be in this space uh, with our characters who are there over the course of months. Uh, because that's the length of time that the, you know, the baby needs treatment. And in that time, their relationship develops in a terrific way that our cast has done an amazing job of finding um, uh, a, a nuanced way of, of portraying. Uh, Andy Lucien and, and Jenna Keda, uh, they're terrific. So um, uh, it, it's been a real treat to do it in the in the space, it's 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 like many plays. Really interesting to hear how different audiences respond uh, to different um, uh, to different facets. You know, we have encountered audiences who, I think, as you guys were talking about, uh, probably do err on the side of trusting medicine uh, and you know uh, wanting to just be good students and listen and you know and other people who have. Uh, had um, experiences that have challenged that notion uh, or simply understood that our medical system as it is uh, puts our nurses in a difficult position to have to be overworked, to have to look after more patients than they would prefer. Um, uh, and that's not necessarily exclusive to the NICU, uh, but uh, from the nurses that I've spoken with anyway, that seems to be uh, interdepartmental challenge of the way our healthcare is set up is that they can't spend as much time uh, with each and every patient. And so, you know, you may have one, you may have a nurse who has a better medical understanding of what's happening, but isn't there all the time and isn't seeing, observing all the data that, um, that, you know, that Mike and, and his wife, Rahana, they experienced when they, you know, or the characters in this play are sort of experiencing. So um, it's interesting to sort of watch that unfold uh, on stage. Gonna leave a breath in case, Mike, you had anything you'd like to add about any discoveries you've made? In terms of the, um, the production of it? 
Yeah, just moving it to stage. I, um, I, I'm just uh, fascinated by like the preview uh, process and, and um, because this was a co-pro and so getting to see two different sets of audiences. Um, like, so it's, it's just like all information gathering for me and like it's really thrilling to, um, to watch the actors adapt to each other and adapt to the audience. And um, so as uh, proud as I am of the audio version, there is a certain like uh, um, tyranny to like choosing exactly this take and like this is the experience that you're gonna get and that's it. And like, I love that uh, I have a blueprint and, um, and that every experience is different, but I'm still like really learning from it because it's so fresh, it's like a world premiere. So I'm still kind of figuring out like what's resonating and, and it's really, I, I go into a play from my own perspective and I get quickly alerted to sort of the bevy of perspectives that are coming in to receive it. And I'm in that kind of absorptive period where I'm um, like, oh, I thought that it would be taken this way, but people seem like they're taking it this way on this night and then on this other night, they take it a different way. And um, so all of that is really like what, um, like what draws me to theater is the variability and the, um, and the kind of range of uh, takes that people uh, bring to something that I, think you know it's like going to be received essentially like i wrote the thing and i received it a certain way and i'm like oh no there's a total you know wide range of other ways that people can receive it and to ask the kind of like how do you know when a piece is done question uh i'm curious after the the audio version mike were there any or in moritz as well like were there any parts that you took from the audio version were like now that we're doing it on stage, let's take a different look at this or let's revisit this how we did it the first time. I don't, um, for me, it's like really never done in the same way that I, like, I don't think that, you know, the director or the acting has ever really done. It's like at each time that somebody gives us an opportunity to uh, work on a project, like you're coming in with um, your sensibilities today. And, um, and so uh, even in the case of like Teenage Dick, for example, where we did like, the world premiere of it and then uh, a couple of years later we're able to do a, a couple more productions of it like we were still making changes both in the um writing and in the in the playing of it because we're different people on any given day yeah i was uh, i was uh, curious um more it's i i know your your work uh as a as a, doing comedies I, I think of your work as a not to pigeonhole you, but I, because of Hand to God, because of Present Laughter, Thanksgiving Play, I think of your plays as, as a, not just comedies, but physical comedy. Like, I feel like that's something that I, I think you have a strength in. And so I was struck by this play. It does, definitely has wit, has comedy, has a lot of, has a physicality to it, but it feels like in a different register. Would that be fair to say that then, then maybe even your other work with Mike as well? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think okay. you're right that it's like less physical, uh, mm -hmm. although maybe the actors would <laughs> disagree <laughs> because they're on stage for 90 minutes. But uh, in the sense that the way you mean, and thank you for that really lovely compliment. I'm, I'm really grateful. It, it is different, but there are similarities. I mean, I think what is to me, having worked on so many of Mike's plays, what I feel like is a through line for many of his plays is his ability to set up expectation with an audience that's sort of like, you know, we sort of acknowledge the audience is really smart and they can fill in gaps and start to predict where a story might be going. And then uh, using that and then subverting uh, that um, uh, and, and then challenging why those presumptions or expectations uh, existed in the first place. I think um, his play Teenage Dick does that extremely well. And if that's, you know, uh, if people know that play, um, this play I think is similar. And I think that's one of the things that we've calibrated, you know, like, because part of the play is about um, bias inside the healthcare system. And because bias so often uh, emerges from our blind spots, it's been a tricky thing to uh, figure out like how much to the surface we really need to make that obvious and clear uh, so that people really can uh, see what the characters are talking about when they feel that that like that is transpired between them. We did a reading of it where I think Mike you you mentioned that you had sort of had this feeling of at the end of the reading you know because the play is about a young black dad who didn't expect to be a father and at the at the beginning is pretty overwhelmed by the 
the the um, unexpected nature of the whole event, uh, and it feels up a bit upended, you know. And then, uh, not to give anything away, but goes on a journey with, you know, uh, um, incorporating this whole event into his life. Um, uh, there was in an early reading a feeling from an audience of like uh, satisfaction that felt like it came from judgment uh, in a way that we were like, ooh, that's not, that's wrong. <laughs> that's not what we intend this play to be at all. Like, so um, that was a really helpful stepping stone in terms of continuing to like figure out, okay, that is an expectation that Mike sets up at the beginning of the play, but you know, what he and I are still always trying to do, this is going back to your question of like the ways in which it's similar to our our other work together is that expectation that needs to be subverted into how does he then engage the medical system and, and um, take ownership of uh, his daughter's care, uh, which is a much more complex idea um, and has an inherent amount of tension between a parent and uh, a healthcare institution who may sometimes be on the same page and may other times have a different perspective of how they would want to handle a certain situation. So um, uh, it, it, I'm really glad for where we've gotten to and the changes that Mike's made because I think it uh, now blossoms into a new thing. But that's sort of the thing I'm always sort of looking for. It's like, how, how do you, how do you, um, how, how, do you how does the audience leave having experienced something different than they anticipated? Uh, and I, I suppose, yes, that works for comedy really well because comedy is so much about surprise often. Um, uh, but in this case, you know, uh, it's a great way of pointing out um, something that's hidden even from some of the characters in the show. Yeah, definitely. I think that the skill sets for comedy and suspense, I think, are very similar, like in terms of expectations. And not that this play is suspenseful, but it does sort of keep you guessing about its next moves, right? It's not a thriller, but it's a it's definitely you know, there's there's suspense about the characters' motivations. And um, you know, there's a note uh in the audible uh page that JR pointed out to me about uh how you you thought fatherhood would uh, be a great subject for you, Mike, about how change the way you write plays and it, it it has but maybe in different ways than you you thought uh i wonder if you could talk a little bit about about that but obviously nick is a very unique experience but just in general being a being a being a parent how that changes your perspective i yeah um i people were saying that like uh oh you're gonna write such different plays now that you're a parent and um i don't I didn't actually expect to write about parenthood explicitly, but I also um, wasn't trying to become a parent to create fodder for new plays. <laughs> um, but I do think that like, there's, you know, inherently like a shift in my um, consciousness, like because of the kids that I um, now am reprocessing a lot of um, my childhood through my parents' lens. And, you know, so that instead of being kind of like, uh, this is how I felt about this growing up, like thinking about kind of how they must have felt. And then conversely, in the way that um, we're raising our kids and sort of like, there's a lot of like kind of big philosophical questions that come up in terms of like, how do I want to live my life? Like, what do I want to um, convey? And so I think that there's just like an inherent like widening of of my um, lens that uh, that is going to feed into the work. But I didn't expect to write a play about parenthood, you know, specifically. I also just think, you know, in, in terms of your question to Mo about comedy, like I think that Mo is such a gifted comedic director and that like usually my, um, like my uh, style is more broadly comedic. And, um, but I do think that like what, we're always really ruthlessly looking at like the, uh, the truth of the characters, the arc of the characters, what they go through, what they want. And um, I think that we share a, a rigorousness around that. And also like, uh, trying to get away from like just sort of jokes that are funny because and so this is um an extension of our previous work because it's really trying to get into the psychology of these characters and and be truthful about it while still having 
light elements. Um, we were never really doing uh, like just you know sort of side gags and things for no reason. So um, so it feels as though it is like a slight gear shift, but still using some of this. Uh, like our core sensibilities remain the same. Right, right. I, I feel that. I, I anecdotally, I just, uh, I, I know that just being a parent as a theater goer, I noticed that when I saw literally the revival of Glass Menagerie with Cherry Jones, that's a while ago, but that's how long ago I had a kid. And I was like, I realized for the first time I was identifying with Amanda. I was like, what? I, and I have a son and he was like an infant. It's got nothing to do with Amanda or what they're going through. But I felt like all of a sudden I'm going, oh yeah, she's, she's, she's got kids. Don't leave her. Don't leave her. <laughs> so it's like you know it, it sneaks up on you the ways that parenthood can just totally shift your perspective i imagine moritz as well you're how old is your you said oscar's his name oscar he's uh almost 10 months 10 months oh that's great age <laughs> great age yeah um i forget ali you know you said you had been a you'd been a preemie but i'm sure you have other thoughts in your mind to ask these folks yeah i mean I was around 25 weeks. I, I was actually texting my mom before this. I was like, what was like, I can't. Um, but uh, yeah, I was around 25 weeks and just hearing the stories from them, also hearing about the, the medical bills and the insurance and all of that wonderful headache. And that's something that you, you highlighted in this place so well is about the, the American healthcare system with, you know, does the parent have insurance? How long is the baby covered under the mom's insurance? Things like that. And then maternal care and, you know, inequalities in, in uh, mortality rates for black and brown mothers and, and things like that. Like those conversations are, are so vital and so important, especially in the political climate that we're in right now. I'm curious how maybe moms have responded to this play. I know it's, it's very much a play about fatherhood, but uh, it's, it's interesting to me uh, that some of that is obviously interwoven with the, you know, the health of the child and the, the care that is happening there. Um, have you heard from any moms in the room about, about how this sat with them? I, uh, to be honest, um... So far, because um, I've only been through a couple of preview processes, um, uh, have heard mostly from grandparents and um, not as much from like parents. And uh, so I, um, I like I'm continuing to sort of erase and gather impressions, but it's, uh, but I haven't like uh, I haven't bumped into too many like uh, uh, moms that are that where it's like fresh for them, you know. Um, I do know that like there's some aspects because um, the character of Caroline is uh, still going through breastfeeding and um, even though, you know, her, her kid's not in the NICU, but she has young kids and there's a lot of um, uh, verbal response in the audience around some of the aspects of, uh, of like uh, sleep training and breastfeeding that we get into and in the, in the play that you're hearing kind of these um, responses. And uh, uh, so this is all uh, a lot of this stuff feels a little bit under talked about in theater and um is exciting to me because i'm just uh used to seeing a lot of plays that are like at a life phase it's not this and um yeah so not a lot of conversations with moms yet but still gathering feelings <laughs> i mean i have to imagine that like if you have recently had a kid in the nicu you know, you may or may not be running to see a play about it. Uh, I'm not sure you may need some distance before you're like ready, you know, to see it on stage. I, I'm not sure that's an individual choice, but um, you know, I, I think the people that I've talked to, what I've found is that uh, even if they haven't personally had that experience, they may know uh, somebody who has or have just, had a fantasy about how might how difficult that might be if they were to end up there, um, uh, or they've had some other kind of protracted healthcare experience, and it is a, a messy quagmire uh, that um, uh, is uh, uh, that a lot of people have to deal with in this country, and so 
um, it's, it's, it feels rewarding to sort of open that up. And I think the people I've talked to have been really grateful to figure out how to talk about how trying that experience is, you know, to get bills, but there's 16 different bills and everyone's from a completely different, uh, company. Some of them are from out of state for some reason. And you never know if, um, uh, is this the last bill? Is this it? Are these all of them? Or what's this one for? And, uh, you know, is this the same as that one? They just traded. It's, it's just, you know, even if you have money, it is challenging. And if you, uh, aren't sitting on privilege, even when you have insurance, it's just like, uh, it's such a challenge. Um, it it is, it's, it's a difficult, um, emotional situation that is like, ripe for discussion yeah it seems like it seems like uh it, it could be on a bill with uh cry it out the molly smith messer play right if it's a little later it's not a nick you but it's uh definitely about young moms and motherhood i mean that th this is an area where again since it's not I, I i think there is there are there is a literature plays about this but there aren't quite enough i don't think it's great to see more of them and i i do agree i mean reading it I mean, Mike, you said you want to run from the set. I'm reading it like, oh, do I want to see a play? I mean, it's, it's been 14 years, but do I want to go? Yeah, actually, I think it's enough distance. I will see this play, but <laughs> I had a moment of hesitation. Well, you have to say that you run a Zoom with the playwright and the director. So, well, of course, I'm going to see it. Of course. Maybe, not this, maybe not this one in Chautauqua, but I, I hopefully we'll have a future, a future life. Um, that's the plan, right? I imagine, right? Just, you're not gonna, yeah, so we're, yeah, it's gonna... yeah, go ahead, Mike. Oh, it's going to the Geffen next year um, oh, in the winter, and uh, and then beyond that, we don't, we're not sure. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I wanted to just, you know, I I know you both are in the midst, the thick of your work on this play, and I I'm sure we have more questions about this play. I just wanted to zoom out just a, for a second, just to ask. You both have been in the field for long enough to sort of be people. You get asked the question of how how you how you think things are with the field. I mean, basically to put that more eloquently, but uh, obviously the, you know, there's some contraction, there's there people worried about the state of, of theater. Some people are angry about the state of theater. I don't know, uh, you've been doing it as, as both basically freelance artists, is that right? I mean, you might have some teaching gigs, but basically freelance artists, um, uh, you know, just wanna throw that out there, the topic of the day. What, what are your thoughts? <laughs> How are we doing? You want to go first or should I? <laughs> <laughs> you go first. I have a lot of thoughts about this. I mean, I, I think that um, my experience as a theater viewer has changed. And um, mm. and I'm just like personally trying to wrestle with that, that I um, felt as though like uh, pre-COVID that I had a, um, I was like on a steady diet of theater. And I think this would have happened intrinsically because of parenthood and because you have to get a babysitter every time and whatever. But um, I find that I'm consuming theater in a different way and I'm trying to do it in a little bit more of an intentional way and seeing what I'm generally, what, what I'm genuinely excited about and not just like, I have to see all these things for coverage. And so like the way that I'm choosing shows to see is different now. But I think that like um, professionally, I'm really alarmed by the closure of a lot of the development houses within theater. And I think that as everybody is um, trying to keep their doors open and, and trying to put plays on without having to shut for COVID and figure out all those like contingencies that we're focused on that right now. But it feels as though um, as an industry, we're like a zombie walking with its head blown off and it doesn't know its head's blown off yet. And I think that there's, you know, right now people are trying to fulfill their existing commitments and 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 ex on commissions and things that got canceled. And I think that that's noble and great. But I think that like the development industry got gutted, and we're not mm. seeing each other day to day as much as we were uh, a, a couple of years ago. And so I think that there's like a real sort of artistic kind of thing that's looming um, that's going to come up as those shovel ready projects are are um, produced and gone. Uh, so that's my kind of angst right now. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it's, so you, it's real. I, I similarly like worry about the next generation uh, of of talent. I mean, uh, as cost of living gets increasingly difficult, and even if you decide not to live in New York City or Chicago or you know like um, uh, other major theater cities, 
chances are you have to live in a city uh, somewhere and it's just becoming difficult everywhere. So uh, without programs that are helping you develop your craft without uh, being in a place where you can, I mean, people are still doing it. People are still figuring out how to make that happen, especially if you are someone who comes from means, you know, we can continue to perpetuate an industry that uh, favors uh, people who come from privilege. Um, but I, I think I think what we would love is a, um, a field that is much more diverse and has many different stories to tell uh, from all kinds of different perspectives. And and I just worry for the field at the moment of of how young artists can get footholds and um, sustain a life. Uh, I mean, I think Mike and I are really grateful to be at a certain place in our career, and and yet. You know, I, I would say that, like, financially, that doesn't necessarily mean that, like, we are um, uh, living in luxury. So, uh, um, uh, it, it is. It's a challenging industry. It's a challenging industry, I think, all around. Um, and uh, because our contracts with uh, Lord or or. Uh, the Broadway League or or um, Antic or anywhere else, like that only comes up for review every few years. You know, when inflation hits hard, uh, we're still, you know, we don't even have the opportunity to really um, push for a better pay until those contract negotiations come up again. Um, so, it, 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 you know, you're sort of like looking with one eye towards what's the economy doing and the other eye towards like, when are the contract negotiations coming up again and what can we expect? While institutions at that very same moment are saying like, we've gotta be thinking about slimming down. And, uh, you know, and so like, it, it feels, uh, it, it feels like a challenge. Feel, you know, I don't mean to be pessimistic, but it's, it's like a difficult moment in our industry at, the, at this moment. I'm also wondering whether there's a possibility of becoming a little bit more nimble in programming because it, um, it feels as though uh, right now, I'm I'm witnessing a little bit of a um, of a conflict between um, like summer theaters that were uh, started with a certain ethos of like let's put up a show and get away from the city for the summer um, versus the kind of like professional production that audiences are expecting to see. Um, and I think that there's like uh, personnel implications of that with the artists and you know in terms of like the housing that they have and like the kind of the setup that they have. Um, and then I also think that like within producing theaters that there's um, a, like a certain level of polish that audiences seem to expect but that actually doesn't let you be as artistically nimble. And so um, when you uh, when you talk about theater as being a place that responds to what's going on like in the world right now, you kind of can't because I can write a play it's gonna go through a development process. And then by the time that it gets produced, it's probably gonna be like three to five years later. So it's not like we're talking about like what's going on today. And I think that part of that has to do with the sort of um, the way that theater's programmed and the kind of level of like uh, of uh, showmanship or polish or, or just sort of like how, how it's conceived, you know, that, that, that people are expecting a certain um, like, uh, design kind of grandiosity or, or, and I just um, am craving a model that like, let's programming be a little bit more nimble that like, let's uh, us respond to what's going on now, instead of trying to think about like what we'll be thinking about in five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, for now, it, that those concerns aside, you're, you're getting audiences, there shows going on, you know, beautiful place in Western New York on the water there. The people are in the area to go check out Tiny Father. How long, how much longer are you running? Uh, through next week. Through next week. Okay, so not much time. So folks, if you're in the region, <laughs> check out Tiny Father. We are not obviously, but uh, uh, personally ourselves, but actually it's only a couple hours from Pittsburgh, you were saying, right? It's not too far. So <laughs> um, yeah, it, I think, I think, um, that, that does it for, for the, this is great to talk to Mike, to, to Mike and Morris about this play. Uh, again, we hope it, check it out at the Geffen next season. Is it next fall or next, next spring? You said? Next spring. Next spring. All right. Check it out at the Geffen. And uh, Mike Morris, thanks for coming on uh, off script. Thanks for having thanks. us. Yeah, thank likes. you so much for having us. <laughs> okay. Take care.
So we're going to go to uh, Jay Wynn Rusick, who's with us in the green room. Jay is the Theater Critic of Baltimore's uh, NPR affiliate, WYPR. And she used to be the award-winning Theater Critic of Baltimore Sun for many years. She's on the faculty of the, of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center's National Critics Institute, which uh, JR has been through. I have not, but uh, uh, Judy, uh, it's great to have you on. Uh, we brought you on to talk about any number of things, but also specifically uh, the Contemporary American Theater Festival that you went to in July. Judy, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you for inviting me. That's good, good to have you here. Um, in the past, we have covered it a bit. Um, and, you know, we don't do reviews per se, but we sort of get a picture of what the plays are like. I think there's some service to the field in that, in just letting people know who's doing plays, what are they like, how did they go. So I don't know if we could just go through. Uh, it was it was five shows. Um, first of all, let, let me ask you this. Uh, they took a break, I guess, probably for during the pandemic, right? Did they do, Two did years, they do, yes. Do they just did they do virtual or is it just completely off stage for a while? No, no, they did some virtual things, but it wasn't at all the same sort of, they adapted a little bit. I'm not completely aware of what they were doing at that time, um, okay. but they're back. This is their second season back up live full productions. Okay, and, so they did, they did one last summer too then, okay. Yes, yes. Great, great. So we missed, we missed two years. You don't have to catch us up on two years, but just you could tell us a little bit about was it a full five season in rep again, like they used to do? Well, actually, they used to do six plays. Six, oh, six. Okay, that's six, right. Yeah, in, in rotating rep. And this season, they did five. Okay. And Peggy McGowan, the artistic director, uh, said that they felt that audiences and uh, actors and theater makers were a little bit rusty. So they mm -hmm. cut back to five for this year. But one of the things that, oh, and the other thing that, that might represent a cutback is that in the past, actors would play roles in more than one play for the most part, which is something audiences especially enjoy. This year, um, they decided that the actors would only play, uh, only perform in one play. And again, mm. that's a way to ease back into things. But another thing that's interesting about this, this is the 33rd season for the Contemporary American Theater Festival. And it started uh, in the early 90s. I started covering it in the mid 90s. I think I may be the critic who has covered it the most at this point, because once I started, I never stopped. I've been there every year since then, first for The Sun and now for um, uh, the NPR affiliate. Um, this year's festival actually grew in a couple of respects. And one is that it had been using, it's in residence on Shepherd uh, University's campus in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And it had been using three venues on the campus and it still is, but it stepped out into the town of Shepherdstown and performed one play in the Shepherdstown Opera House. Plus, this year, the festival was gifted another space, uh, a historic church in the town. The congregation um, voted to gift the building to the festival. And so far, they've just used it for rehearsal space, but they're hoping they'll be able to produce there, too. So um, that would be that would be five spaces. And listening to what you were just talking about, about theaters declining, developmental programs declining, some cases disappearing. Um, this is, this is really a surprisingly uh, an encouraging positive sign of growth uh, in a place where, you know, uh, you might not expect it. That's really good. I, I, to, to, before we go into the individual plays, I, would you say that also the audience response and attendance was, uh, was pretty robust? The audiences are back. Well, I compiled some figures for you. So, oh, wonderful. Uh, to glance at those. Um, this year, they issued over 10,000 tickets, and that actually is a bit of a decline. Now, of course, we have one less play, so that's going to cut down a little bit. But they have theater goers coming to this small town in West Virginia from 38 states. And uh, to date, they have produced 144 new plays by 105 playwrights. 66 of their plays were world premieres. Uh, and they have an operating budget of $2 million. Um, so they're, they're pretty much going strong. And I know 
from Baltimore, many, many audiences go there. Um, it's also in an area that's kind of a commuter place from Washington, DC. Um, so you get a, a, a pretty sophisticated theater audience and a lot of people who come for all five or six plays. I have always seen them over the course of two days. See three one day in this case and two the next day and get to go to a couple lectures. They have the playwrights do a lecture every year the first weekend and that's loads of fun. That sounds great. I, I mean, one of the things we they touched on, it was related in the earlier conversation about development programs, but another another place, I mean, Humana, the Humana Festival is over. And um, there's some concern about, you know, uh, wh where new plays can get a get a footing uh, and, and, and Contemporary American Theater Festival was going strong and it's going strong. I'm just wondering if possibility that's going to take even more importance with the absence of Humana. Um, I think that's possible. And yeah. also the founder of the festival, Ed Herendine, was big not only on brand new plays, but on also giving second and subsequent productions <clears throat> to mm. new plays. And um, Peggy McGowan seems to be gravitating more towards world premieres and especially commissions. Another sign of growth this year is that the president of the board of trustees started a fund for commissioning new plays. Um, so we could see some really brand new stuff there. That's great. That's great. I mean, again, not to allude too much to the trends in the larger field, but like those are all sort of counter to some of the trends that supposedly are happening with the you know, right. audience. Audience taste for the familiars. No, you don't have to fill in the blank there. Um, so let's let's go through let's go through the plays. We have about you know ten minutes or more, a little bit more um, to to chat about the the plays. I mean, if you want to go through one by one, or just tell us some of the highlights, the ones that you uh, particularly responded to. Um, well, let me tell you the highlights. It, yeah, that's good. There were five plays, and three yeah. of them were quite strong, quite good, which I think is is a pretty good ratio. So good. I'll tell you about those. Um, there's a play by Chisa Hutchinson. This was her fourth play at the Contemporary American Theater Festival. And she had a play called Redeemed. And this play mm. is set in a prison. A prisoner has been convicted of a hate crime. He's con been convicted of the beating death of a Chinese American man. And now the prisoner has written to his victim's sister and he claims that he is a new man, that he has been redeemed. This is the kind of play that Moritz was talking about where it switches allegiances. It was a two character mm. play. Interestingly enough, it was presented in the round and on a turntable. So uh, that was uh, very appropriate for characters who kept turning the tables on each other, huh. I thought. Um, wow. And uh, a, a very, very interesting and intense play. Um, mm. Jose Rivera was there this year with a play called Your Name Means Dream. He also directed the play. This was also a two-hander. Um, one of the trends that I know you're seeing also in theaters these days as budgets become tighter is smaller casts. And that was, yeah. that was the case in four of the five plays at the festival this year. So your naming dream, the two characters are a 70-year-old widow and a robot, an AI prototype that the widow's son has brought in to take care of her. She is very resistant to this initially. Uh, and in fact, Rivera said that when he started writing it in 2019, he really thought of it as a science fiction play. Um, now, maybe not so much, um, but it raises some interesting questions. Um, can an AI creature have emotions or can it learn emotions? Um, and can a human being come to genuinely care about a robotic caretaker? Um, I'm not going to answer those questions. <laughs> the play certainly, certainly poses them. I mean, it sounds like it might be kind of sitcom-y, but it really was, was quite touching, quite touching. Hmm. Um, and then the third play that, that impressed me a good deal was a play called Fever Dreams of Animals on the Verge of Extinction. This is by a playwright who was new to me, Jeffrey Lieber. I think it's the play that had the most commercial potential. It was a little like the dark side of, do you remember Same Time Next Year? Um, sure, sure. So, I, I, I know the premise of Same Time Next Year. I don't know right, if I ever well, saw it, the premise yeah. is similar. You have a man and a yeah. woman who've been in an adulterous affair and they conduct this affair once, at, once a year, they get together and they, they hook up and they've been doing this for decades when the play begins. And this year, 
their hookup takes an unexpected turn because a third character shows up. I'm not going to say who that is, Um, but uh, it was, it's, it's an interesting premise and a very dramatic one. And I will say a gun shows up very early on and you know what Chekhov said about guns uh, showing up early. So I'm looking at the key art for the play has got a bullet and some cockroaches. So that tells me a little bit about maybe somewhere where the play goes. Yeah, I didn't so, think I needed a spoiler alert for that one. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, right, right, right. Wow. So that, sound, that sounds like a, a pretty rich... Uh, I was going to say, we we had Chisa Hutchinson actually on this program, February 2022, her play American, which was at the Houston's Alley Theater. So she's she's been in our orbit before, but it's great to hear she has another another new play that might uh, might make it way, make its way into the to the circuit. Ali, uh, Jay, I don't know if you have any questions about these plays or really if you wanna ask Judy about, uh, you know, her, her writing criticism. I was gonna ask a critic question because, yeah. you know, you've been covering this festival and especially with a festival that has five world premieres. Can you talk a little bit about the way, what you see the critics role is in talking about new works and in reviewing new works specifically? Well, I find when I'm reviewing a new play, I have to, it's very different from reviewing Shakespeare where you can assume your readers have some familiarity at least with the more famous Shakespeare plays. Here I feel part of my duty is to not just give a sense of what it was like to sit in my seat and experience this play, but really to perhaps say more about the plot, the characters. Um, And I'm always looking at what was the playwright trying to do? Can I figure that out? How well did he do that? So um, that all of that said, and I could have easily done full reviews on any of these plays. Um, I have always had to do omnibus reviews. I always have to jam them into one review. And on the radio, it, it really goes fast. Five plays, like they give me a little extra time. But um, so I really do try to try to hit the high points. Um, and, uh, you know, it's nice to have some extra time to talk about some of these because they did leave strong impressions. They're full productions. They're not what, uh, what we experienced at the O'Neill. Um, right. They're, right. they're the next step. Um, and the other thing that happens with the theater like this 33 years is that they have to develop an audience. They have to build an audience. And the contemporary American theater really has done this. They have an audience that is really hungry for these plays. And probably every year that I've reviewed them, I've used words like tough and hard hitting and topical. It applies every single year. This is really serious stuff. Yeah, and I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on on being a, a critic on the radio specifically feel like a lot of people don't realize how difficult that is um i listened to your your 15 minute hit on on this festival and i've done a couple radio segments talking about theater before and i i just love to hear from your perspective the challenges that go into trying to convey everything within a paragraph (laughs) maybe versus like six seven hundred words for a, a newspaper plus my reviews are done live so in that sense, it's a little bit like a bit of theater. And, you know, that can give a critic humility, which is a good thing. Um, and during COVID, I was only on the air once a month. And I was talking about things that were streamed and things that you could, um, you know, catch on great performances on PBS. Um, but I was also broadcasting from the room I'm in now, which is, is in my apartment in Baltimore. Um, and like live theater and live radio, anything can happen. And there was one instance when the engineer just came on and said, we've lost the host, start talking. <laughs> and I said, when? And he said, now. Um, so these are, these are all humbling experiences. They're good experiences. I'm so grateful to NPR. I mean, I was a critic at the Baltimore Sun for 23 years. It was a great job. And Baltimore is located near Washington and I could do day trips to New York. And it was, it was fabulous. Um, Critics, of course, are now almost a non-existent breed because they were writing for newspapers that are becoming a non-existent breed. At the height of my time at the Sun, I think there were seven critics there. And um, I wouldn't have left if they hadn't replaced me, but uh, that didn't last long. 
So I'm so grateful, like so many print journalists to NPR for um, sometimes I, I feel that um, it's almost like a refugee camp for print journalists. And, <laughs> and, and we're so fortunate to have that. Um, it is, it's, a, it's a little bit different. Uh, one of the things that's nice about it, and I've also done reviewing on Maryland Public Television, on radio, I play small excerpts from the mm. plays. I play audio bites. If it's a musical, I can play a song, which can really give a sense of the texture of a show. So that's a definite asset. Um, but I love doing it, and I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to do it. And um, if I can, because uh, Rob said he would let me do this, I want to talk yeah. about something I was doing or that I sort of wrapped up during COVID that not theater criticism, but a bit related. Um, so I have uh, I have wrote my first novel and it's being published this fall. It's a book called Please Write. Um, it's being published by Bancroft Press. And it's actually a book about two dogs. It's an epistolary novel in which there are three correspondents. Two of them are dogs. And the third is a widowed Midwestern artist. And I have to say, this play was greatly influenced by Paula Vogel. The year after I left The Sun, I, was, I went immediately on the radio, like a week later, after taking a buyout from The Sun. But I spent the next academic year as a visiting student in Paula Vogel's graduate playwriting program at Brown, another thing I'm immensely grateful for. And so many things that she taught uh, helped shape this play. I mean, she's big on things that are impossible to write and playing games in order not to look directly at the sun and making the familiar strange and the strange familiar. All those things happen in this book. And there's a character, not the major character, but there's a character of, surprise, a theater critic. And uh, there's a section in which the critic is supposed to be interviewing Edward Albee. And right before leaving for the interview, one of the dogs gets into a bunch of mischief and almost keeps the critic from getting to the interview. And there's another section, the same dog almost becomes a member of a kind of Bill Berloni type show business performing dogs kennel. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that bit comes a bit from truth. Um, I'm a very deep researcher. And my yeah. husband used to say he knew I had gone overboard when I not only knew the type of pet that my subject had, but I knew the name. So um, with Edward Albee, it was it was Irish wolfhounds. Anyway, um, a lot of that, what's, most of that never appeared in the paper. <laughs> what's the name of the book again, uh, Judy? The book is called Please Write. It's already write. available right. for pre-order on, on Amazon and on Barnes right. and Noble. And the publisher had me establish a website. So jwinrustic.com, a lot more. On I, uh, I want to fly two things. One is that that piece you wrote about uh, crashing Paula Vogel's course we actually published in American theater so you can find that online the other thing is uh a telling a telling uh a, a slip you, you called it a play you, rather oh. than a book. you said that which I think is I mean I think that it's it's epistolary it sounds like it's got dialogue so it was inspired by a play you just can't get theater out of your out of your life no matter what you do well so, maybe, maybe um, there's a play in its future who knows maybe maybe it could be staged it could be an audio maybe it could be an audible play well um, and it is the audio book has been recorded and the actress just did an extraordinary job i mean she has to do voices for these two different dogs besides the characters i wouldn't have known how to start doing that she did a great job amazing amazing well, judy it is so it's so good to uh to virtually meet you and to, to hear your words i think we did actually you pointed out we did meet once in person but it's one of those things that passed very quickly at a conference, but um, uh, it's great. It's great to meet you. And uh, JR, Ali, thanks for another exciting episode of Offscript. Yeah, thank you so much.